So a question for you. Um, who here, I guess this is probably for younger people, uh, but don't worry, you'll get a chance if you're a little bit older. Um, who has grandparents here who spoil them? Is anybody willing to admit this? Your grandparents spoil you guys? Yeah? Mm -hmm. There's a few hands that are going up. Marshall's grandparents are, are pretty close by him. <laughs> as he puts his hand up, not to draw attention to any uh, one person in specific. Um, you know, so if you think of, of your grandparents spoiling you, I think of things like maybe if you've been over at their house, you've, uh, you've stayed up late or, you know, as some would say, maybe too late. Uh, maybe you've eaten too much junk food. Maybe you've watched something that was uh, too scary for you or uh, you came home with maybe uh, a few too many new things uh, when you were away at your grandparents' house. So, so there is this, uh, maybe I'll ask another question. Uh, who, who has kids who would say that they're, they are currently being spoiled by their grandparents? You, <laughs> like no hesitation, just straight out, that's good. Nobody else is willing to admit that? Did I miss other hands? Your kids are being spoiled by your own parents? Nobody. All right, that's fair. This just won't land for you guys, I guess, if you guys are just so in perfect balance. Here's the thing. I hear one of the beauties of being a grandparent is spoiling your grandkids. Like, is that not, is that not one of the benefits of being a grandparent? Is that you don't actually have to, like, deal with stuff? <laughs> you can just give them sugar and then send them home uh, and let the parents deal with the, the sugar crash when your kids lose their mind because they have like no substantial food in them. They're just filled with sugar and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my body's empty and I am mad. <laughs> like that's, that's a part of the beauty of being a grandparent is what I understand, um, is that you just get to uh, love the kids who come your way. Maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm disillusioned in thinking that that's, a, that that's one of the beauties of that. But it sounds like a lot of fun, um, because I know that one of the worst parts of being a parent, it feels like anyway, is, is having to say no to my kids, uh, is, is having to uh, discipline them, is having to deny them, is having to sort of stop them from uh, enjoying what it is that they want to enjoy by placing limits on them. I know that for me that can be a hard thing and when your kids uh, like first hit this stage where they they lose their minds when you say no to them uh, but they say no to you all the time. It seems unfair. You can't lose your mind on them when they say no but they lose their minds on you. Um, that it's just a difficult it's just a difficult phase of life um, and so I think that that that's a part of maybe what I'm looking forward to as a grandparent is just being able to, to kind of spoil, uh, is to spoil grandkids. You know, there is, uh, there is all these, these different um, parenting philosophies as well that are out there uh, that, that not all would say that, you know, parents are there to say no and grandparents are there to just uh, give their kids whatever, whatever women desire it is that they, they want. Um, but there are these different sort of philosophies of parenting that, that every time we say no to our kids, uh, that we do damage to their souls or something along those lines. And so it's this idea of these are different, but you kind of always say yes to your kids or even like child-led kind of parenting. There's a certain degree where you 
have to trust your child when they're hungry, when they're sleepy, and all that kind of stuff. But we have moved that sometimes, I think, into a degree where we just say, uh, whatever our children want, then that is what we will do, because it sure feels better uh, to, to give a gift that is well-received and loved than it is to sort of say, hey, you know, right now we can't afford that, or you've got way too many things, uh, therefore we're not going to get that, we're not going to do that. We're not going to eat out today because we just ate out two days ago. Hurrah! <laughs> um, again, maybe this is not your experience, but this is some of my experience. I think that, that this idea of, um, of like a spoiling grandparent or, or a, a permissive parent is, is something that we can cast on to God. That we can sort of view God in this way. That we could say that, that God exists to spoil us. Or that God exists to bless us. That our prayer life involves, will God give me this? Will God bless me in this? Will God do this for me? That we think that God is there um, simply to dote on us um, and to let us do whatever it is that we want. And the, and the idea of hearing no from God is uh, unbearable or unfathomable. Maybe even to the point where we decide that we don't actually hear the word no from God. Um, we will just hear what it is that we want to hear. That we would sort of feel that God is not there to guide me. God is not there to direct me. God is not there to limit me. God is there uh, specifically to bless me. The problem with this, if this is our view, and, and we'll get into, like, I think automatically we would maybe want to say, well, no, of course that's not the way that I view of God, but we'll talk a little bit about it more. But the problem with this view of God, to say that he is just there to bless me, while it contains truth, and this is where, this is where some of the things that we're going to be talking about that we talked about last week, some of the things we're talking about this week and the next two weeks is we sort of look at different false images of God that we can have, that we can hold on to and how that affects us. This is where they get a little bit tricky because within them there is some truth that are, that's contained, right? So the idea that God just exists to bless us, we know that God wants to bless us. We know that God delights in us. We know that God is a giver of good gifts, that he is generous, uh, and that he looks upon us with, with love, actually, as we, as we talked about last week. But the problem with this, this soul picture of, you know, some people have said Santa Claus God or, or God is a cosmic vending machine or, or whatever it may be. The problem with this picture of God is that we, well, there's multiple problems, but we generally are not always the best at knowing what is good for us. Is that fair to say? that we may think that that's, we uh, need something, we may think that we want something, that life will be better if uh, A, B, or C uh, occurs, but we don't necessarily know for sure uh, that that isn't it. So this idea of, um, you know, uh, child-led parenting, um, which I don't, I haven't looked into, and so I'm sure there's a lot more subtlety to it than, than, than what I'm saying. But if this is how my parents had parented me, um, I don't feel like things would have gone very well. 
<laughs> in life in general. I think that if my parents had just said, you do what you want to do when you want to do it, I would maybe still just be sitting on the couch in front of the TV. That is generally what I would have done, and I maybe would have moved from the couch to a chair in a room uh, behind our living room to go and play Nintendo. <laughs> and would have maybe gone between those two things. Maybe eaten? Here's an interesting thought. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's addictive personalities within my family. When we got our Nintendo, like for the very first time, like the original Nintendo, and, and we could play, I don't know, Zelda, and, and uh, my dad had these little war games. My dad, uh, an adult at that point in time, and I know lots of adults play video games. I feel like it was rarer back then. Uh, but my dad, my mom told me that my dad actually lost like somewhere between five to 10 pounds when we first got our Nintendo because he didn't snack. <laughs> like he just, he wouldn't go and eat, he would just stay there and play it. And it's like, oh, that's, that would be me. Like that, that is, that I see, I make, that makes so much sense of my life in so many ways, <laughs> is that I would be terrible uh, at, at the most part in, in sort of leading what it is that I was to do in my life, for the most part. I mean, I know that there's, there's people who give their kids, you know, iPads and, and, and free kind of access to, to watch whatever show you want whenever, and the idea is maybe that, like, oh, well, they'll get bored of it eventually because you've got to get bored of TV sometime, and then they'll go off and find something else to do. I don't know that I would have done that, especially if Netflix existed. Oh, man, <laughs> you can watch anything uh, over and over again. So, anyway, I think that we're not always the greatest people uh, at knowing what it is that is best for us. So what are some indicators potentially that, that we would maybe without knowing it hold this view of God? That we would have this image of God in our minds that he is there uh, only to bless us, not to limit us, not to direct us, not to um, correct us, but he is there to uh, only bless us. I think that one of the indicators, and if I can be honest, that this is probably, like, of the, of the four kind of images that we're going to look at over the next while, this is probably the one that I would struggle with the most. This is probably the one that I've seen uh, most active in my own life and in my own understanding of God. And so I've had to look at my own life and say, where is this, like, where does this play out? Where have I seen this kind of happen? And I think that one of the main indicators uh, of, of, of holding this view is that we would struggle to pray. Is that we would struggle to pray. Not necessarily that we would struggle to pray for other people. Because <laughs> we know what other people should do with their lives. Um, and so we can pray for them and we can pray that things would happen for them and, and we can pray quite specifically uh, about what's going on there. Or even we can pray with deep empathy for other people. And good intention. But when it comes to praying ourselves... And going to God and saying, God, should I do this? God, is this what you would want of me? And asking those questions, I think we struggle. And if that is something that we struggle to do, if we are more likely to make a, a large plan for our life and then say, God, bless my plan, then we may struggle with this view of God. We may hold on to this even if we're not fully aware of it. Um, I think uh, another example, because the images that we hold of God uh, shape us, they affect us. Uh, I've heard it say that we, we become who we worship, 
And so it, that's why it's important that we have uh, correct theology. This is why it's important that we have a right understanding of God is that we will begin to reflect uh, who it is that we think he is, uh, is that another indicator is that we are uh, overly permissive with other people, that we, the people who are close to us, the people who are in our life, we struggle to say no to, whether they are asking us to do things that we are maybe uncomfortable doing, maybe we see patterns in their life that we would say, you know, that would be good for you uh, to change that, or whatever it may be, we don't necessarily confront it, that we get permissive ourselves. Or, I actually think that there is another flip side to this. We, we hold on to sort of like the favored child syndrome, and we think that it's okay that God blesses us with everything that we want, but if we see like somebody else kind of living uh, maybe permissively or whatever, we would become overly harsh and critical against those people. That it's okay for me to experience it, but everybody else, mm-mm, that's not the way God functions. We may struggle with a picture of the fact that God uh, is, a, is a permissive God. And then I think maybe the last thing um, that I would say, there's probably other indicators about this, but the last thing that I would say is that um, maybe, maybe examine what it is in your own life that happens to you uh, when you don't get your way. Maybe take a look at, at, at your reaction there. Do you feel like, and there are some normal natural reactions even as we're, as we're talking to people and maybe somebody doesn't think our idea is a great idea or somebody says no to us, that, that you know, our face can get a little hot, we can get a little bit anxious, or we can just kind of want to uh, maybe stop the conversation and we can struggle to continue. But I think that if we have really harsh reactions when we don't get our way. Some people would say whether we fight, like we lash out quite harshly, uh, or we, we take to flight where we would run and we would hide and we don't want to be in relationship with anybody, especially not that person who has not given us what we want, um, that those tendencies, uh, overly, like overly reactionary tendencies to not getting our way could be an indicator uh, that we struggle with this idea that, that, that God is... Uh, permissive, that he just exists to bless us. And as I've already said, there is truth uh, within this idea that he delights in us, that he is a generous gift giver. He allows us freedom that, that we can choose and that we can make some mistakes and all these different things. But the idea that we can live a life without boundaries, that from God we are only to receive blessing, that we are only to receive permission for what it is that we want to do within our heart is actually quite dangerous. And as we heard in, in Hebrews chapter 12, as Anna read that for us, it might actually be an indicator, if, if that's how life went for us, that we were to never receive correction or direction from God, that it would maybe show us that actually that means that God doesn't really care for us if he weren't doing that. That if you think of it from a parent's perspective, if I were to not instruct my children that fire is hot and dangerous, uh, and I was just to say, well, they'll figure it out on their own, uh, when they come across fire and they touch it, <laughs> they will learn. Um, I would be likely, I think, a careless parent because that means uh, their first encounter with that could actually be uh, not just dangerous, but even deadly. If I weren't to teach my children about the dangers of, of traffic, 
that you wait, especially when the roads are icy, like you wait for cars to, to be slowing down and stopping before you cross the road. And I say, oh, they'll figure it out. Uh, they'll put two and two together. Vehicles are big. They're small. Like um, they, they'll, they'll just sort it out themselves. They'll learn. If, if I weren't to instruct them in that, uh, that would be careless parenting. I think that it would be a sign that I'm not very loving. If we're not to um, instruct our children about some of the dangers that exist, um, that I think could rightfully be considered careless and, and unloving. That there are things to watch out for, that there are better ways to live. If my parents hadn't chosen to limit, limit my TV time when I was younger to say, like, you can only have a certain amount, I would have spent most of my life in front of a screen. I already spend, like, too much time in front of a screen. I can't imagine what would have happened if they hadn't limited me in that sense. That there are... Uh, good and better and wise and right uh, ways for us to live. And that God who has created all of this knows what that is. And so he is uh, partly uh, there to instruct us. The, the, the passage that we read in Hebrews, you see the word come up a couple of times, discipline. That God disciplines those he loves, and that if you receive the discipline of God, uh, this is a good thing and all of that. The word can mean a couple of different things. It can mean um, that God educates the one that he loves, that God instructs the one that he loves, and it has overall this picture of nurture that you could say, in, in place of discipline, you could say that God nurtures the one that he loves. And that a part of that nurture is correction. I have a picture that I want to give to you from the Gospel of John that I think is a wonderful, a wonderful and beautiful replacement um, for uh, the image that we may have of a spoiling grandparent, a God who is a spoiling grandparent, a God who is a, a permissive parent, or if we believe that God is, is simply there to bless us. And it does speak of God's correction, as we see is vital in the passage in, in Hebrews 12 that was read for us. Um, but it's really important to sort of not just you know, we have a tendency to say, like, okay, God's not this way, so God is totally this way. Like, we swing a pendulum in our understanding of God. Like, once we, once we think that this is wrong, then we so quickly can move over to the exact opposite side of that. And so the picture that I want to give to you, I think, is a really uh, wonderful picture of, of the correction of God, of the nurturing heart of God, and we see this in Jesus. It's in John chapter 8. Um, verses 1 to 11, and it's actually a story that a lot of people feel like don't belong in the Gospel of John. That's why, like, in some passages, in some Bibles, it's not even there, uh, but in others, it's kind of like it's got these little uh, lines around it that would say that um, this actually may not fit because it doesn't really fit within the story, but this is where we find it within a lot of the, uh, a lot of the manuscripts. But Everybody that I'm able to come across has agreed that this is a legitimate story of Jesus that we have within the Gospel of John, and this is just where they decided to put it at some point in time. All right, you probably didn't need to know that, but uh, I like letting you know about stuff like that just because it interests me, just in case you had the question. Okay, so John chapter 8, 
says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. The law of Moses also says to stone uh, the man that was involved in the adultery. Interestingly enough, he's not there. Uh, The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something uh, they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. There's been a lot, of, a lot of guessing as to what it is that Jesus wrote in the dust at this point in time because we don't, uh, it doesn't say, it's not very clear. Um, and so a lot of people have sort of put their guesses into, into what it is that Jesus wrote, um, which could have been exactly what he says next in the sense that uh, a judge uh, in that day would have written down uh, his sentence and then would have spoken it out loud uh, just so that it was a, a proof, you know, that this is what, they weren't changing their mind or whatever. There was just this official kind of nature to it. Other people feel like maybe Jesus was writing specific sins <laughs> down in the dust, maybe of these people or maybe even commandments that they know they would have broken because of what comes next. They kept demanding an answer from Jesus, so he stood up again and said, all right, agreeing to their, to their statement. So the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, which I think is always fascinating, it's the older people, maybe, who are a bit more aware uh, of their sin. Uh, maybe through their whole life, they know that they've fallen short of God, and us younger people who are like, no, 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 I'm good. So when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now there's three things, or three kind of attitudes that Jesus has here that I want to draw your attention to. The very first one is that in this story, uh, Jesus speaks the truth. He corrects two groups of people. And maybe anybody else who's listening if they wanted to be corrected. But he specifically corrects two groups of people. He corrects the woman that's brought to him, that was brought to him by a a group of men that likely uh, were trying to help a friend out uh, in the sense that they were maybe trying to trap this woman uh, being caught in adultery so that he could divorce her without giving her any property is likely why there was no man there um, because they let that man get away because it was all a part of their trap. But Jesus speaks a word of correction to the woman who has been caught in a sinful act, um, and he says to her, go and sin no more. He corrects her and says, your way of life, what it is that you are choosing to do, whether it is he has any other knowledge of other things in her life, but he says to her in this point, um, this will not go well for you. 
stop it. It would be wise for you to stop doing this. Jesus corrects her. He also corrects the men who brought her because he sees their hearts. He knows what's going on in them. And he says to them, all right, you know you're sinful, but if you want to judge her, which is God's alone to do, then if you feel like you know, you've got no sin then and, and, and you're not going to be faced uh, with God's judgment, then yeah, why don't you go for it? You do it too. You can, you can kill her. And in that sense, he draws their hearts and he draws their minds to their own sinfulness and they go. And Jesus, who is the only righteous one, who is the only sinless one who could make a judgment, is left to make a judgment. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to that Jesus does, uh, a way that he treats both people is that he actually, he honors their dignity. He actually allows them to keep whatever dignity they have left at this point in time. Here's why I want to, here, here's, here's the example as to this. Uh, in some of your passages, you maybe have the word uh, woman that is used uh, to, speak to, uh, to speak to this woman who was caught in adultery. When Jesus refers to her, he says woman, which seems quite harsh when we read it that way, because we don't talk to people that way. <laughs> I don't go to my uh, wife or somebody and I say, woman, uh, it, it seems, that, that doesn't seem good. Um, but this is the same word that Jesus uses for his mother, uh, as he, I believe, is speaking to her from the cross, speaking to her and John. He says, you know, woman, uh, and, and this is one of the things that he uses for her. It is actually uh, a term of affection. But Jesus uh, respects her dignity in that he uses this term, but he also, um, you know, says to her, I don't condemn you. And that then allows her uh, to go. With the men, it's even, it's even more fascinating because he treats them in a way that I don't think any of us would. If we were fully understanding what was going on in the situation as Jesus did, I so believe that we would treat them very differently. Here's why. Jesus writes down, in, he, he, he stoops down and he writes in the sand. And they're demanding from him an answer. They're demanding from him an answer. Maybe Jesus was stalling to try to hear from the Spirit of God, okay, what do I do in this situation? Because I know that whatever I say is a trap. If I say yes, if I say no, somebody's going to be offended, what do I do? And then Jesus stands up and he says what he says, okay, those of you without sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he stoops back down to the ground. And writes. And he doesn't look up. He doesn't stare them down and wait for them to all of a sudden realize, oh, yeah, I'm sinful. He doesn't watch them go away. He doesn't like sit there with his victory and go like, that's right, you guys slink away. I won this battle. He just stoops down and keeps writing in the sand. And in a shame-based society, uh, making eye contact with somebody who has just lost or who has, you know, acknowledged something shameful about themselves heaps further shame on them. And so Jesus actually in this moment uh, to these wicked men, because this has all been a trap for the woman, for Jesus, um, Jesus allows them to have dignity and, and walk away. So Jesus uh, speaks the truth. He treats them with dignity. <laughs> and then the third thing that I just want to draw your attention to is that he respects, I was having a hard time wording this, but he respects 
their, their place in their journey. He respects the place that they're at. So do the men. Uh, he doesn't demand that they uh, go and make reparations. He actually doesn't demand anything of them. He just leaves the question for them and then lets them decide what it is that they're going to do with that. And then the woman is also really, really fascinating because Jesus doesn't say to her, repent of your sins. He says, change your ways, which, you know, is, is another way of saying repent. But he also then doesn't, doesn't give her um, like absolution. He doesn't say you are forgiven because she doesn't ask for forgiveness. I think at some point in time, like obviously in that moment, if she had become aware of the depth of her sin and the uh, depth of the grace and the love and the power of the one that stood before her, like she would have, but at that point in time it didn't seem like she did. And Jesus didn't force it. So he honored the place that she was at on her journey, where it is that she was at in believing, and left that decision uh, up to her as to what she was going to do. So this is the picture of our nurturing God. Not our permissive God, but our nurturing God. That he speaks the truth. He will correct us in what it is that we are doing wrong, and that is a sign of his love for us, that is a sign of our, uh, of our status as his children. He will do it with dignity. He will honor our dignity within his correction, and that he will respect the place that we're at on our journey. And whatever decision we're ready to make, he does leave that with us. He'll persist. He'll, kept press, he'll keep pressing. He'll keep uh, getting our attention, but he honors where we're at on our journey. And this is what I think it means to speak the truth in love. You know, we talk about that sometimes, to, to, to speak the truth in love, and I think this is the picture that we have of Jesus speaking the truth in love. That it honors the dignity of another and that it honors the place that they're at uh, in their lives uh, and, and in, in their journeys. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, um, no discipline is enjoyable while it's, in while it's happening. It's painful, right? When we experience correction, when we experience discipline, when somebody points out to us, whether it's God or whether it's somebody who is close to us, uh, that loves us, even if they are doing it from a heart of good intention and true love for our, for our own benefit, um, it's painful and it hurts. But the author goes on to say that afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. That the correction of God is nurturing in the sense that it is always for our future development. It is always for what is best for us. It is always what is needed, and it is never more than what is needed. That as we are disciplined by God, as we are corrected by Him, um, it is done from a place of care. And so, we don't need to be afraid to go to Him in prayer. 
We don't need to be afraid that maybe at the end of the day we look back on our life and say, oh God, how did I honor you, but how did I, how did I fall short? What do you need me to see that I can change because I want to be more like you? We don't need to be afraid of that to think that God is going to come in with a hammer when what's needed is something much gentler. I've experienced uh, non-nurturing correction in my life. And I've experienced nurturing correction. Correction that has honored my dignity, correction that has um, honored the place in which that I am at, that I am the one to make decisions about my life, that God has given me that in so many ways. Uh, I, I, I think of, you know, little ways that he's done this, that's sort of like a minor course correction, but then there's other major ways in which God has done that, where there has been uh, incredible pain, whether it's been in acknowledging sinful behavior, whether it's been in breaking uh, of pride and arrogance that is built up over time. Um, through, through incredibly painful situations in my life, um, I have experienced the fact that the result of this is always, uh, as is said here, a peaceful harvest of right living. That it has always been to correct me um, towards what is best for me. And so I want to encourage you to know that yes, God is not just permissive, while he delights in you, while he wants to bless you, that is not the only thing that is on his heart. But know that his heart for you is also not just, uh, is not just doom and condemnation, that he desires to correct you, uh, to bless you. He, de- he desires to correct you so that he can bless you, if that's fair to say. And that he's not one that we need to be afraid of in that way. And that as we follow our nurturing Father, I think we as individuals will be able to uh, live as He has asked us to live. I know that myself, I've been one who has given uh, correction that has not been nurturing to others, and that's not a heart that I want to have anymore. So, as we experience this kind of love from our Father that does correct us, that does discipline us, uh, may we understand more and more Uh, that it is from a heart of love uh, that God brings us this uh, pain uh, that results in right living. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for your character. We thank you so much that you want what's best for us. that you've paid an incredible price that we may walk uh, in the way of life in sending Jesus uh, to this earth and then in Jesus choosing uh, to, to be taken to the cross. And we thank you that you have defeated the, the broken systems and the principles and powers of this world in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus and that we now have an ability Uh, to walk in the way of resurrection, to walk in the way that Jesus walked as your Holy Spirit dwells within us. And Father, a part of that is correcting our course, 
correcting the path in which we sometimes find ourselves walking down because we don't always know what's best for us and we don't always know what's right. And God, we make mistakes. We've been hurt in life and those things that have hurt us have caused us to think certain ways too. God, would you heal the broken places? Would you allow us to trust you to experience the fact that yes, you are good, yes, you are loving, and your correction, your discipline, uh, your education comes from a desire to nurture us into full maturity in Jesus Christ. For the benefit of the world, that they may see in us who you are. So Jesus, may that be so. May that be so. May the pain of discipline uh, turn into uh, joy and peace as we experience what it means to walk uh, rightly. And thank you for the ways in which we follow you well. Help us to continue that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.